I'm Emily. And I'm Joni. And this is the Grow Where You're At podcast. Where we discuss all things Appalachian and country. Now set your cell phone down and learn a thing or two. And maybe laugh a time or two. Now let's hop to it. How's it going? It's a going good. How about you? It's a going good. Can't complain too much. No, better not. Because some, <laughs> people are, some people don't care and the other half are just glad to hear it. So, Yes. I don't give them anything else to be happy about. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Are we ready to kick this off? I'm ready to kick this off. Like, I've been itching for this because I'm super excited. Because it's like a passion. Yes. Yes. This episode is all about food preservation and all the different ways you can preserve your food. It is. But before we get into that whole topic, we're going to take a blooming minute. To talk about what we've got going on right now. Darnie, what you got going on? Oh, goodness. Uh, the garden is in high gear. Um, <laughs> and when the rain finally finishes, I need to go pick a ton of stuff. I have corn ready to come in and be canned and tomatoes and carrots and green peppers and more green beans and it's the busy season. <laughs> we've, How about we've you? Been, uh, much the same. Much the same. I've been trying to can tomatoes since Monday when I came and got tomatoes from you. I've picked more tomatoes in my garden and I've picked more beans. And at this point, I feel like I'm just trying to stay afloat with the work and the homework that I'm doing. So, Yes, busy season is no joke, but it's busy. all worth it. It is all worth it because there's nothing like, to me, there's nothing better than cracking open a fresh can of homegrown, home-preserved tomatoes when it's dead of winter, there's snow on the ground, the wind's blowing, and I just want something warm and comforting, and there's nothing more comforting than that fresh tomato taste that you've preserved yourself. Yes, maintaining that fresh garden flavor it is it's a lot of work when it happens but you know we just keep ticking off one thing at a time and just don't let it overwhelm you and just one thing at a time tick it off tick it off tick it off exactly exactly all right are we on to the hot topic now because i am excited like i'm itching like Pumping at the bit, like trying not to give too much away to anybody. So I'm ready <laughs> since we've got the blooming minute out of the way. Yes. Um, and before we start, we are going to add a disclaimer. This is not by any means a total tutorial. We are going to go through um, from the easiest and most simplest ways of food preservation to the most out of this world techniques that are used, you know, mainly by commercial corporations but we're still going to talk about those just a little bit 
please do your research. Emily is going to be posting links um, on the description to where you can find more information about the topics we're going to talk about. The National Center for Home Food Preservation is, you know, I'm going to be posting that in the comments and in the show notes. But that's where you can find just about everything you need to know on how to do almost all of these that we're going to talk about. There is, a, I think, one or two that they don't talk about doing on there. But it's because they don't pose that much of a risk and not that many home preservers are going to be doing those things. So the National Center for Home Food Preservation doesn't necessarily cover those. But that is always a resource. They have recipes. They have all of the all of the really good resources. So that'll be posted in the show notes. Yes, and with all food, home preserved or store bought, keep in mind the little saying: "When in doubt, throw it out." It's always to be better to be safe than to be sorry. Exactly, because you don't want to. Because then that's going to just, you know, don't get sick. If you've got a question about it, pitch it. Exactly. When in doubt, throw it out. Exactly. And for those of you that have chickens, if you are in very high doubt about it, don't even feed it to your chickens. Throw that in the trash. Throw it in the compost pile. Throw it somewhere to where something's not going to consume it if you have major doubts about it. Exactly. Um, so, let's talk about Number one, this is just an interesting little tidbit for people. Did you know that honey is the only food that will not rot? I was thinking I was that honey is about the only thing that really just doesn't go bad. Ever. Yes. They have found 3,000-year-old honey that was still good. I bet you it was good, too. Hey, I, I don't know if they eat it or not, but I'm just going to say I would probably been dipping my finger in there and tasting it. <laughs> I would have, but you know, the saying goes like, I'll probably die petting something I shouldn't have or eating 3,000 year old honey. Yes, or tripping over my dog's leash. <laughs> Same. Or I'll, I'll fall over the dogs because my dogs don't know what a leash is, but I'll, I'll probably wind up falling over the dogs. Yes. Um, a few extra food safety uh, tips before we get into techniques is always remember that food should be kept below 40 degrees or above 140 degrees. Between 40 and 140 is where your bacterias grow, and we do not want that. No. Food's cold and your hot food's hot. Yes. And, and always make sure to thoroughly reheat anything that needs to be hot. Yes. So, on this one, we're going to be, like we said, we're going to talk about food preservation. And why do we want to preserve food? Well, it's going to extend the shelf life. Like we said, you know, when you have a garden, or even if you just have that one plant growing in a windowsill, you're going to have more than you can eat at one time. And to keep that food fresh as long as possible to keep it usable as long as possible you're going to want some method of preservation it's going to cut down on your waste it's going to 
extend the supply. It's going to extend the life of that product and it's going to maintain the nutrition of that product versus, you know, yeah. letting it degrade more. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and I always feel like there's just a touch of satisfaction in that it's like, even if I dry one single sprig of herbs, I'm like, I dried that. Yes. I planted that. I grew that. I harvested that. I cured that. That's mine. I did it. Woohoo. That's mine. <laughs> exactly. There's that little bit of, you know, satisfaction like, hey, I did that. Yes. That little bit of that little bit of there's- boost in your in your serotonin that you just did that. Yep, and there's no stopping me now. <laughs> yes, because once you get started and I mean we're going to list these pretty much in order of the most easiest things that you can do to the hardest, weirdest things. And so let's jump right in, Em. Are you ready? I'm ready if you're ready. Yes, ma'am. So number one we're going to talk about is cold storage. And so that is anything that you can do to protect your produce from heat and light because those are the enemy when you're doing cold storage and um a lot of times you'll remember your mom and dad or your granny and grandpa or whoever having a root cellar which by definition emily's, a fruit yes emily's gonna get me. <laughs> uh, i'm a definition person so like y'all look over me but if you google the definition of a root cellar it's gonna give you you know, an underground storage area for vegetables within large roots, which is especially carrots, potatoes, onions, things like that. So that's kind of what a root cellar is used to store, but it can be used to store other things, such as Joni has a better list of that things than I do. Oh, root cellars, you can store um, any of your root vegetables, really. You can actually store um, cabbage in there. Um, you can store onions, potatoes, parsnips, carrots, anything that grows underground, any of your tubers. You can do apples, um, but never place those things next to each other. You know, um, basically that goes, don't store your roots and your fruits together. Exactly. But, you know, pretty much any. Any of those root vegetables that you grow or you get from the store or whatever, you can actually preserve the life expectancy, shall we call it, of those just by keeping them cold and dark. So if it's a corner in the house where it doesn't get light and it's cool and dark in that room in that corner, make it into a small little storage area. Yeah, I have a um, potato and onion box for fresh eating, like those potatoes that, you know, I put in there and I'm going to use them right away or pretty directly within the next month. Same with the onions, but then whenever I go to actually store in them, I'm going to store them separate, whether I store it, you know, in our cold storage room that we have or whether it be like under the sink or just somewhere like that where I know it's going to stay cool. Yes, or in in my case, you know, I have a pantry room, and in one corner we have potatoes with a dark fabric over them to keep the light off of them, 
And then on the upper other side of the room, I have um, a mesh bag with my onion harvest in it. And that's going to keep them separated enough that they're not going to, because if you get one bad spot, it will turn onions will turn potatoes and potatoes will turn onions. So you never want to store those together. Exactly. And so pretty much in apples and fruits are doing do the same thing because of the um, acidity and the sugars in fruits will do that for your vegetables. Right. So let's no, move do. on to the next. I'm, I feel like yeah. it's the e next easiest. Yes, would be dehydrating, which is one of the oldest known methods of food preservation. Um, and we're talking meat jerkies, fruit leathers, um, banana chips, veggie chips, um, pretty much anything that you can think of that has been dried out. And yeah. again, Emily's going to give us a definition so that that's more <laughs> understandable. <laughs> so the, the technical definition of dehydration is that it extracts moisture from food, thereby inhibiting the growth of microorganisms. So those microorganisms that you want to stop growing is what you're wanting to like. You're not wanting to give them that moisture. You're not wanting to give them that moist, dark area for it to grow and create bad problems. And there's five different ways of dehydration. One is sun drying, air drying, solar drying, electric drying. Now... There's different uses for all of those methods, but it's all it all does the same job. Yes, sun sun dehydration has been used forever. Um, as simple as you know, if you have a net and a blanket, you can put a you know like a towel out in a sunny spot, and you know roll tomatoes in salt and have sun roasted tomatoes for recipes or for preservation you know etc whereas now we have an oven which you want to you know you want to look up everything but say you know most things that are dehydrated are at like 200 degrees for an extended amount of time so it's low heat for a long time to draw out all the moisture evenly as possible right and you know with some things, I've got two window screens that I've taken out of the windows to either where we've got the stove through or where I have the air conditioner sitting. And I'll take those two screens and kind of sandwich them together to keep insects or animals out of it. But it still gives it the circulation that it needs in order to dry properly if I'm drying something outside in the sun. Yes. And also, you know... I will air dry some of my herbs and such. And that's as simple as a sock or a flour sack towel. And you can put it around it and band it with like a hair elastic and let it hang and dry. So that's yep. also another. With some of my woodier herbs, like my, my really woody stems, like oregano, thyme, lemon balm, catnip mullen things like that i will bind them with you know i'll take a few sprigs at a time and time by the stalk end 
and hang the blooms upside down and I will just air dry them in the house like that. It keeps the bugs off of them, but it also allows me to have those dried and in the house already. Yes. So let's go on to the next easiest thing in our opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Is freezing. Freezing. Yeah. Yes. And Freezing in the most basic form would be, you know, you can get Ziploc bags, not necessarily the name brand Ziploc, because this is not sponsored. <laughs> but We are not sponsored by Ziploc. Yes. Let's add that disclaimer in. But you can get those bags for the freezer, and pretty much anything can go in the freezer. It just depends on how long it'll last. I mean, certain things will last forever in a freezer. Certain things have to be used within a couple months. But freezing pretty much just is like slowing down any processes that are going on microbially in the product. I store things like um, chopped green pepper and onion for convenience purposes in the freezer. Um, you know, it's the same thing with like frozen meats and things like that. And Miss Definition here will give us her. I don't have a definition for freezing because that one's just kind of like cut and dry. You know, what? you pop it in the freezer, but what putting it in the freezer does is it actually slows down the growth of that bacteria. It doesn't necessarily kill it like heat will. But it'll slow it down and prevent things from going bad as long as you keep it frozen. Now, with meats, you don't want to pull those out and thaw it out all the way and then put it back in the freezer because that's just not recommended at all because that's just not good. No, but it's asking for it. That's asking for trouble. But, mm-hmm. you know, freezing, it just slows down the growth of bacteria and those microorganisms and all of the nasty stuff. And it slows it down. And it's just going to keep things a little bit longer. And it's one of the easiest preservation methods. Like if you buy too much something, you just throw it in the freezer and you'll have it for a later date. You don't have to go out and buy more. You know, go ahead. No, you go right ahead, honey. I was going to say, I freeze a lot of my meats because I don't have other preservation methods other than dehydration right now. So I freeze a lot of my meats. They're usually not in there long enough to go bad. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I freeze um, squash from the garden. You can slice it up, freeze it, pull it out in the dead of winter and batter it up and fry. It, and it's that taste of summer all over again. So I've done that with my fried green tomatoes. So I cut my green tomatoes up and went ahead and pre-breaded them and then just put them on a cookie sheet and dried them so they didn't all stick together. So now when it's dead of winter and I'm just craving a fried green tomato, all I got to do is pull out one or two of those fried green tomatoes, either put them in the pan, put them in the air fryer. And then I've got fried green tomatoes to gorge myself on in the dead of winter when tomatoes are not anywhere around here. Yes, which leads us into a segue, which is not really a very common technique of food preservation right now. Um, It's still kind of one of those expensive versions. But because we talked about freezing and dehydrating, 
I, I think we should include freeze drying here, um, which freeze drying is one of those methods that if you've ever seen an MRE, um, astronaut food, all those things that, you know, um, military and things like that, uh, you've seen something for, uh, that's been freeze dried. And that's basically where they use nitrogen to instantly freeze or quickly freeze and preserve the food as it is. But Miss Emily, do you have a definition for the freeze drying? I do not, but it kind of like combines both the dehydration and the freezing at together. It like meshes those two together and freeze drying requires special equipment, which can be expensive. So, Very. but the the cost of that equipment versus you know you can get twice the shelf life out of a freeze dried food is what you can out of just dehydrated food or just frozen food. So, yes. Yeah, so if you do have you know if you do have the ability to buy a freeze dry machine. And, you know, that's something that is available to you as an option, then go for it by all means. You know, those things are going to last for a long time. Personally, I do not have a freeze drying machine. Those are way beyond my pay grade. But. And if, I mean, if somebody, one of you guys out there has a freeze dryer, like y'all, y'all let us know how it does, because I'm genuinely curious to hear from somebody who is not on the level of, you know, testing out freeze dryers or like some of the other sites and podcasts and resources I've heard that the freeze dryer is the best thing in the world. Like if y'all got a freeze dryer out there, somebody pitch it and let me know how that freeze dryer is doing for you. Cause I genuinely want to know. Exactly. Me too. I am so interested in it, but at the same time, it's just one of those things. It's like, you know, it's just beyond me at the moment. <laughs> I cannot justify the cost of a freeze dryer when I have other preservation methods right now. Exactly. Um, and that kind of leads us into vacuum sealing. Um, so vacuum sealing is another method. Um, so those things that you dehydrated, um, if you want to help preserve those longer, um, basically... Mm -hmm. Any it's of your dry goods that you have, it extends the shelf life of dry goods. You can vacuum seal beans, pastas, any of that, too. And, you know, you have the option of clear bags, mylar bags, um, oxygen absorbers, CO2 packets, uh, silica and gel packets. Have, and they have attachments now that will go on top of, like, a mason jar and will allow you to vacuum seal that way, too. Yes, because oxygen is oxygen and moisture are your enemies when you have dry goods. And so, you know, and again, not sponsored by Amazon, but I do have um, oxygen absorber packets and um, moisture absorber packets that I bought off of Amazon for like six bucks a piece. And I have been using those since last year. And, you know, it keeps my you know, dehydrated boot, uh, beetroot powder. Um, I dehydrated tomatoes, so I would have tomato base. Um, I've got those in there, and they're still holding up super well. It is an option. It's not that expensive to do, so I feel like vacuuming should be towards the lower end and the easiest things to do. I 100% agree with that. 
I do. And then we move on to what most people think about first when they think of food preservation, which would be a middle-of-the-road thing for most of us. Um, it's probably my favorite, though. Canning? Yes. I love <laughs> to can. I have this, like, fascination with, like, going up there in our storage room or in what we call the man cave and just looking at all my pretty jars <laughs> up there. <laughs> I understand. There's nothing quite like that feeling when you have worked so hard and you go look at your shelf and you're like, I did all this. I did it. I, it's it's saved. It's ready for us to eat this winter. It's amazing. Yes. And I do actually have a defin an actual definition for canning. <laughs> Wait a minute. I miss let's, the other two. Let's divide that, though. We have two versions of cannon. We have open kettle and we have pressure cannon. Yes. Both of them kind of involve placing food into jars or similar containers and heating them to a temperature and or pressure that destroys microorganisms that causes food to spoil or causes you some really nasty problems. Yes. Which if you have ever... Looked into canon, you know, your number one thing people talk about is botulism. And as long as you follow some simple rules with canon, you know, with me, when I open water kettle can, I call it open water bath, but it's open open kettle cannon now. But you want to keep your jars hot your lids hot, the food hot, and go into a hot bath, and make sure you get all the air out of your jars, add your salt to your jars, because, you know, those are basically just what I go by. Yes, and we are not sponsored by Ball, but Ball has a really good canning book, and Ball has a lot of really good books and things like that that have safe canning procedures in it exactly or if you guys buy a lot of times if you buy a pressure canner it doesn't matter the brand pressure canner it will come with a canning book make sure that it is an updated version and make sure that you follow those procedures to a t yes because you know uh different things require different amount of time in the canner um whether you know whether it is open kettle or it's pressure it's different with the open kettle, it's usually just a different amount of time. Uh, with the pressure canner, it's time and weight or pressure, amount of pressure. I think um, most things are between 10 to 15 pounds, whereas when you get into like certain jams and jellies, if you pressure can those, are like 5 pounds of pressure, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Um, that one I can't. I don't have a quote on. That's what I said. Don't quote me on that one. <laughs> right. Um, I don't have a definite answer for. Um, but but it is the most commonly used food preservation technique. And, you know, I'm thinking we have discussed this and I think we're going to go in depth a little bit more about canon in some future episodes, Emily. Yes. Because okay. we don't have enough time to go in depth with both of those tonight. We're just kind of like 
touching on all these preservation methods. And if there's one method you guys want us to elaborate on, please, by all means, let us know. Exactly. Um, then you get into your more oddball kinds. I call them oddball because it's not something that you're going to use every day. It's not something that, you know, you're going to want to start with, per se. Um, oh, no. <laughs> So we're going to start talking about some of the more advanced preservation techniques, I guess. Um, which we're going to go with um, fermentation and pickling next. Yeah. Whenever I first started preserving, there is no way on this green earth that I would have tried fermenting anything. <laughs> I agree. It is one of those things where everything we told you earlier is kind of like, huh? I thought I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> but there's a re rhyme and a reason for everything. And please make sure you do your research on this before you try any of it. And use but, approved and tested methods. Don't just use the Pinterest recipes that you see on there because some of those may or may not be safe make sure you get approved books that are approved preservation methods or find you an auntie or find you an auntie that's been doing it for 40 years yes <laughs> I, I feel called out now oh I wasn't calling you out I was just in general <laughs> saying like you know if, I it's know, your, if it's your 90-year-old grandma down the road that, you know, all of her kids doesn't talk to her anymore, go befriend that woman because she is a world of knowledge, okay? Yes. Um, so, basically, in fermentation, when we're talking about that, um, sauerkraut, um, more recently, kimchi has been, like, the hot thing. Uh, which is basically like Korean kimchi. It's um, I know it's a different it's a different culture's kraut. Sauerkraut, yeah. It's a different culture sauerkraut. Yes, and and I'm going to add a note in here. Uh, recently, you know, for most of this that you're going to be pickling and fermenting, you're going to want basically you're going to add. Either you're going to let it, okay, let me start that sentence over. If you're pickling, you're going to want to add an acid to the food, and that helps preserve it. And the acid that you add is vinegar. However, lately, there has been a change in vinegar where some of the store-bought vinegars you find are at 4% acidity and we do not want 4% acidity that will make your stuff go rancid so you want to make sure that you are getting 5% vinegar for your pickling and if you guys are on the level of making your own homemade vinegar don't use your homemade vinegar in preser preservation because it is not tested we don't know what acid level it's in. So, you know, you guys don't use homemade vinegar and make sure your store-bought vinegar is 5% acidic or above.
Are we still talking about vinegar, Joni? I'm sorry. I, oh, I no. am. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> okay, so um, with pickling, you know, 5%. Fermentation will go with, um, for example, with sauerkraut, it's lacto-fermentation where you are adding salt to cabbage and the lactic acid starts breaking down and basically it pickles it in its own juices. Yes, but there are other things that are added to that to make it a safe fermentation. We can't just Ex like chop cabbage up and throw it in the jar and expect it to do its thing. It has to have things added to it. Exactly. Most commonly salt. But. Exactly. But, you know, that was just like um, a stepping stone kind of fermentation. And so we've done that and pickling you know, is basically pickling is anything that you're going to put a brine, a vinegar brine, like we said, 5% vinegar. Um, and whether that's, you know, you're making fresh dill pickles where you're adding spices to it or you're pickling um, different relishes and whatnot, you know, they all have different recipes for those. But the main thing is that you're using 5% acid vinegar and you're making a, a good brine solution and then you're going to put that over whatever it is that you're canning and like I said there's recipes for every kind of pickled thing there is I've even pickled carrots <laughs> yes pickled okra pickled, pickled beets are my favorite oh my gosh yes pickled beets straight from the jar I will eat them all day long and then use the pickle juice or the beet juice to make pickled eggs. Ugh. I love pickled beets. Like I will sit and eat them straight out of the jar and nobody can tell me any different. Yes. Um, so then we have pasteurization, yes. which is kind of everybody knows milk most milk in stores pasteurized. And so basically what that is, is where you heat a product to, well, Emily, you have a definition for pasteurization? I do not, but I can look up one. Hang on a minute. Okay. Um, I think uh, the easiest way to be, to explain that would be that they heat the product up to a certain temperature for a certain amount of time to kill any microbes or bacterias and such. And then they cool it back down and that is, like, basically for your milk, you know. Uh, I know it was Louis Pasteur that made it, uh, the process, but. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. So, pasteurization is the partial sterilization of a product such as milk or wine to make it safe for consumption and it's prove, improve its keeping quality. Fantastic. <coughs> so it kind of just kind of like, I don't feel like it preserves it for indefinite amount of time like some of the methods do. However, it does extend its shelf life. So it kind of like kills off the bad bacteria that could make you sick or could make the food go rancid for a short period of time. That's why milk has an expiration date on it. Yes. But, you know, that that's just one of those things that, you know, 
are handy to have in the wheelhouse of skills and knowledge. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, next, we're going to talk about, and probably this one's going to be a little bit combined, I believe, because we're going to talk about salt and sugar cure and smoking kind of all together. Um, salt and sugar cure is, if you've ever been somewhere and seen an old-fashioned country ham, those are either salt cured or sugar cured most of the time. And that will be um, country hams, um, bacon, um, fish most of the time is salt cured where they pack it in salt and leave it to dehydrate. Basically, the salt draws out all the moisture and dries up the product. And um, olives are another one that's... Um, cured like that. I feel and then like when, um, um, go ahead. And and then when, you know, those things sometimes are added um to being smoked. And smoking food alone is one of those things that experts can do. I do not recommend it for anybody who is starting out on the food preservation journey at all. No, I do not recommend those for anybody who is on the beginning food preservation journey. I personally don't recommend it for anybody. That's just mine because most of us at home do not have the proper setup in order to be able to safely salt cure and smoke that meat safely. Yes, for preservation uh, methods. Yeah, once you are you know, comfortable enough with it, and if you want to branch out into it, then, um, I mean, it can be done. It's just, it's more of one of those things where you have to be very, very careful. Yes, extremely careful with it, because that's not something I'm familiar with doing, and quite frankly, it petrifies me. Um. I have only dabbled a little bit. I mean, when we had um, a hog we processed, you know, we salt and sugar cured some of the meat to make bacon with it. Um, I do not like the smoking process of that. Um, a lot of times when you start smoking meats, um, you have to be very careful with temperature. You have to be very careful with the woods that you use. You have to be very careful with... Um, not getting charred because, you know, according to FDA regulations now, the char from the wood can be considered a carcinogen. So we don't want any of that in our foods. No, and we don't. You, it takes a lot of extensive research and ingredients and things like that. So that is like for those that are extremely skilled and extremely advanced in this whole process. Yes, because you're going to add nitrates and nitrites and different chemical things to to those things to extend the life. And, you know, where we, Emily and I, are mostly focused on the more organic, cleaner version of things. Yes, but don't get me wrong. I do love my bacon. So if some, bacon's going to take me out, then bacon can take me out. But... <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it just, it takes a lot more. And like you said, we got to add lots of stuff to it. So, but if there's any experienced bacon makers out there, call us. I will take some off your hands and I'm all about learning how to make my own bacon. <laughs> yes. Um, but that is, you know, I, I felt like when we started making the, the notes for this week's podcast, that it was one of those things that it is a lost art. It was a lot more common back in our ancestors days, but you know, with the amount of odd germs microorganisms bacterias that have been introduced into the world since their day you know it's one of those things that are kind of being phased out to the point because they are a little more dangerous than some of the previous techniques that we've talked about they are and you know like i faintly remember some people thought curing hams but you guys they knew exactly what they were doing because they had done it all their lives and there wasn't as much ick in the world as there is today. Yes. I mean, I can sit and talk to my father-in-law all day long, and he will tell me, you know, about having um, the spring wheel house where, you know, just the cold water ran through and they would keep meat in there and their, you know, their milk and dairy goods and things like that. And, you know they would keep meat on a shelf in that little well house and it was fine. Whereas if you did that today, you know, there's a lot more dangers, you know, that accompany that. There are, there are. And the last thing I think that we have on the list is one of the biggest commercial things now is irritation or, or irradiation. And most commercial growers and commercial processors, you know, now they will either flash freeze, flash dry, etc. They will use a hot canning process. But, you know, there's new techniques that are coming out every day. And so it becomes more and more important that if you, everybody should look at what they're eating. I think that is one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself, for your family. You should know what is in your food. You should know how your food was processed. You should know where your food came from. And to me, you know, it's a passion to know this. And with the new techniques that are coming out, you know, where they're microscopically disrupting the DNA and RNA of products to sell to mass consumers, you know, Yes. It's one of the one of those things that worries you. <laughs> right. And according to the FDA, um, food irradiation is a technology that improves the safety and extends the shelf life of foods by reducing or eliminating microorganisms and insects. Now, the process for that is a little hinky. And that ju it just baffles me a little bit. And I had never heard of irradiation until you and I were talking about it you know, yesterday or the day before, whenever it was, we were talking about it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, are you serious? Yes. And and I mean, it's it's one of those things that 
I, I tend to follow, you know, because we both listen to multiple podcasts and YouTubes and bloggers and, and it's one of those things where if you go down the rabbit hole and learn these things, you're going to be looking at things in a little bit of a different manner. And, you know, it's basically, to me, it's the same thing as having a GMO seed, you know, genetically modified. I do, I do not think that irradiating and disrupting RNA in food is a smart idea. I don't think lab grown meat is a good idea, but that's, just me talking, I guess. I, I tend to agree with you. I have no <laughs> no arguments there. None whatsoever. It's it's just against nature. And it's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it bothers me and it baffles me. And I'm like, what is going on? But, you know, if it's what it takes to get food on people's plates, then... Let's get food on people's plates so we don't have people going hungry anymore. But as for me and myself and in my household, I don't think I want none of that. No. And, and you know, honestly, I mean, the amount of things that are wrong with our food system would be a whole nother hour-long podcast. Because it's just, it the system is broken to the point where, you know, you can get like a packaged cup of fruit cut up and i know most people who have been on facebook in the last month have seen this and it's you know the pears were grown in argentina sent to thailand to be packaged sent back to the uk to be sold and it's like but you can just grow a pear tree in your backyard i mean but you know agreed we're agreed and we're going to and we're going to blame fossil fuels from cars for all the, the climate change issues and whatnot. How about we quit sending food across the sea back and forth a hundred times before it gets to the consumer? Agreed. Agreed. And then my last note for today's podcast is when preserving food, make sure you do it in the most base form. Um, you can store flour in a sealed container i have personally got a um, five gallon bucket with a gamma seal lid on it and that bucket i can keep packaged flour from the store directly in that for you know a few years i think the safe recommendation on that's like one to three years but i also have wheat berries and those will stay fresh as long as i keep them dry and cool those will stay good for 15 to 20 years, if not longer. So basically what I'm trying to get to, though, is anything. Go Go ahead, ahead. sweetheart. Now, I was going to say the least amount that you can process your food and keep it in its most basic and natural form, the longer it's going to last. Exactly. So, you know, where you have things like you want to make green bean casserole you can can those green beans and then put the casserole together later and those beans will last longer but if you're making a green bean casserole your really only option for preserving that would be to put it in the freezer which doesn't last as long as canning so it's it's like the more shelf stable you want it to be the more base you want it to be yes yes i don't think i could have come up with a better way to put that 
So, I think that leads us into our wind down minute for today. Yes, it's like, what is it? Our growing minute, or minute of growth, or I don't even remember what we called it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had our blooming minute at the beginning, and uh, now it's our growing minute. Yes. So, so what's your growing minute for the week, Joni? Uh, this week. I'm hoping to be able to process pretty much what's left in the garden a little bit at a time. Um, Hoping to get through, you know, with my tomatoes, get those harvested and processed and corn harvested and processed. And hopefully, you know, my busy, my busy week that's coming will wind down and I'll be on a more even keel. What about you? I think I'm just going to like my growing minute is that I'm just going to try to survive the week because it's been a little crazy and I'm going to try to get you know the bulk of my preserving done that because my garden's trying to wind down too and so I think we're just going to try to get done what what I have that I need to get done done then I'm going to take a nice long deep breath yes and that's what we have to do I mean and that's one of those things you know we're we're more experienced, so we might want to let people know we're not, you know, we're not telling everybody to go plant as large a garden as we do. Um, most people, you know, you can start out with a tomato plant or a four pack of tomato plants, depending on what you're doing. Um, and one plant will give you plenty of tomatoes to eat on and probably share with a neighbor. Whereas Emily and I are talking, we plant you know, 20 tomato plants and, you know, 60 foot rows of things and not just, you know, small amounts. So our busy season is busier than you have to be. Our busy season is busier and longer than what most people would understand or comprehend or what most families would need. But we are more advanced and we're further along than some people might be. So everybody point so just start somewhere yes um you know since tomatoes are so common and one of those things that you know most of us can relate to is you know most people when they start with planting like i said you're going for the fresh eating tomatoes that's one plant you know and And one plant will feed a family of what is it for for a growing season for fresh yes, tomatoes. Me. So multiply that by 10 plants. And so that kind of gives you an idea of where we're sitting at with the tomato flood. Yes. But we do diced tomatoes, stewed tomatoes, whole peeled tomatoes, homemade pasta sauce, tomato powder, you know, all those extra things that we do that are more advanced and, you know, because we've been doing this for so long. Well, you've been doing it longer than I am, so you're a little more advanced with it. Because right now, what I do is I can tomato juice and tomato sauce, and that's what I can. (laughs) So, (laughs) but that's what we use the most of, so that's what I can the most of. Exactly. And, you know, and and that's one of those things that you have to remember, though. I mean, dinner, just do 
what you feel comfortable with. As long as you start somewhere and grow where you're at, then that's all that matters. It is all that matters. And I'm tickled. We got all that wrapped up in our time limit. Yes, we did. And I am super excited for next week. I am excited for next week, too. Are we diving deeper into some of these preservation methods? I believe that's the plan, my dear. All righty. Well, then, we'll come up with a game plan throughout the week, and this will go live on Friday, and we'll have... Uh, Yes, and we just want to remind you that if you do have any questions about any of the topics we discussed today, please feel free to send us a message either on Spotify, Facebook page, Grow Where You're At, um, or whatnot. Um, just anything, yes. that, anything that you have a question about, like Emily likes to say, the only bad question is the question that's not asked, so... Yep, so ask your questions, and like we mentioned before, I will post the links to where we got some of our information from, and that'll kind of give you, you know, the information you need to start on your home preservation journey safely. Exactly. But until next week, remember to grow where you're at. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. It's real and it's raw. Now go forth and be barefoot and feral. And most importantly, remember to grow where you're at. Bye.